Hello and welcome to Queer as Fact, the podcast bringing you queer history from around the world and throughout time. I'm Alice. I'm Irene. I'm Eli. And today we're talking about the Zuni craftsperson, ambassador, and lamina Wewa. We have some content warnings before we begin this episode. There's going to be a brief mention of war. We're going to be talking about interactions between Zuni people and the USA in the 19th century, so everything that comes with that. That's going to include mentions of smallpox and death from smallpox within the Zuni community, discussion of the USA's assimilationist policies and military interventions at Zuni, and discussions of coercive methods used against Zuni people by 19th century white anthropologists. We're also going to be talking about historical and modern queerphobia, historical racism, and ableism, violence, imprisonment, and torture. If any of that sounds like something you don't want to listen to, feel free to skip this episode and listen to another of our episodes. Do we know for a fact that people listen to these parts of content warnings? <laughs> <laughs> I've never considered this. Have we checked? Have we checked? Are you still here? Okay, cool. I'm going to ask a question before you say anything literally at all. Did you say lamina before? Yes. What is a lamina? That is a good question and kind of the topic of this episode. Oh, really? (laughs) Yeah. Can you summarize it for us now so that we can leave early if we want to? (laughs) So lamina is Weaver's gender. I've learned so much already. Yeah. And so little at the same time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, lamina is a gender. We're going to talk about what that means throughout the episode, but is that enough for you for now? Yeah, that's fine. Good. So Weaver is a Zuni person. Zuni are an indigenous American people from the area now known as New Mexico. If you don't know anything about the USA, which I feel like one or both of you does not. That's where the aliens are. (laughs) It's New Mexico, I guess. Yeah, so you know where Texas is, right? Yes. So it's just west of Texas and just north of Mexico. Okay. You can picture that in your mind. I already knew where it was because of the aliens. Yeah. <laughs> I always imagined Texas on the west coast, but I guess I just... What? Just... <laughs> what? Your knowledge of American geography is so much worse than I thought. Anyway. I think this highlights the weirdness of us doing episodes about America for a largely American <laughs> Yeah, it does. We know nothing about your country. Hi, guys. <laughs> Anyway, this has been Geography with Curious Fact. Yeah. Back to the Zuni people. <laughs> Almost all of my sources on WeWa and on 19th century Zuni life and so on, unfortunately come from the work of white anthropologists rather than from Zuni people themselves. I will talk about WeWa's active engagement with that work and their relationships with anthropologists. But I just wanted to say that I would have liked to consult the work of Zuni people more than I was able to given the resources that I had available to me. So what's responsible for that lack of availability? I think that there are a lot of Zuni people kind of doing work in their area about sharing Zuni culture. There's a museum and so forth. Mm -hmm. But I think if you're not actually in that area, there's not as much kind of like writing online and things like that. Okay. I was able to watch a fair few YouTube videos of like, modern Zuni people talking about their lives, mm-hmm. which, you know, gave me some idea of, for example, the place Zuni is in and their culture, but in terms of what it was like in the 19th century and specific facts about Weewa, I wasn't able to find anything. Okay. It's lit review time, pals. Oh, hey. yes. Maybe we should start playing Aquarius Fact Drinking Game and do shots when the lit review comes. <laughs> the get lit review. <laughs> <laughs> so almost all modern scholarship on Weewa is written by or draws directly on the work of a man named Will Roscoe. I remember this man. Yeah, Will Roscoe is also the scholar who has written most of the work about Oshish, who is another Native American 
third gender person who we've covered on this podcast. So remind me if he was, like, any good in that episode. I went back and looked at our Oshtish transcript just to see, like, what we covered about him. And I think we described him as a mixed scholarly bag. Oh, okay. We use that phrase a lot. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot of mixed scholarly bags in queer history. He did work quite closely with the Zuni community in writing his book about Weema. Okay. So, like, that's nice. His work is endorsed by the Gay American Indians group. He does mention in the introduction to his book about Weewa that he was thanked by Zuni people for doing all this research into this part of their history, which had been attempted to be erased by Americans. Okay. Does this book come before or after the Oshtish work in his life? Before. Okay. So this book was written in the early 90s. This book, for the record, is called The Zuni Man-Woman. Okay. So there's that. I don't think that his ideas about kind of Indigenous gender and stuff have changed that much between the two books. Okay. So it's just the same dude. Is this going to be the situation every time we want to talk about Indigenous gender in the Americas? Is Will Roscoe the only guy? He is definitely a key guy. And, like, interestingly, Eli and I were looking up some African content to see what we could make for this podcast the other day, and Will Roscoe was there again. Mm. (laughs) I mean, I guess credit to him for looking into it. Yeah, I guess that's true. That's true. So, um... In case I haven't made it clear, Will Roscoe is not a Zuni person or an Indigenous person. He is a white gay man. Okay. I do want us to keep in mind as we're talking about Weewa that a lot of what we know and a lot of what I'm going to be talking about is being viewed through his lens. Mm -hmm. I'd also like to apologise in advance for any Zuni words which I may mispronounce. And on the note of pronunciation, I also want to mention that there are two possible pronunciations for the name Weewa. Attempts made by anthropologists at the time when they were alive transcribed their name pretty consistently as though it was pronounced Weewa, but modern Zuni people generally say Weewa, and so I've gone with that pronunciation rather than trying to decide whether I think the anthropologists were right or not. Lastly, before we actually start the episode as such, we're going to talk about pronouns for a second. Ah oh, yes, another shot. <laughs> <laughs> yep. In English, people who knew we were are very inconsistent in what pronouns they choose to use for them, both Zuni people and non-Zuni people. Sometimes even within the same piece of writing, you'll see them switch back and forth for no apparent reason. The Zuni language doesn't have gendered pronouns, and so keeping those things in mind, along with, you know, thoughts about Weewa's gender that we'll discuss in this episode, I've decided to use they, them pronouns for Weewa, although you are going to hear she, her, and he, him pronouns in quotes. So what does Will Roscoe do? Will Roscoe uses he. Okay, what do modern Zuni people do? I haven't seen that much of modern Zuni people talking about Weewa, as I've mentioned. I think I've more frequently seen them use he, but I wouldn't say definitively that that's all they use. Like, I don't have a big sample size. Okay. So Weewa was born in around 1849. We don't know the exact year of their birth, so that's based on estimates of their age later in their life. And they were born in the town or the Pueblo of Zuni. So Pueblo just comes from the Spanish word for town. So Zuni was a town of about 1,700 people. It consists of terraces of plastered stone houses, usually around three stories high, and then surrounded by mostly cornfields. Corn is the staple of the Zuni people. And there were also kind of outlying villages that had Zuni people living in them. So probably a total population of about 2,000 Zuni people. Did the Zuni people like traditionally live in this town or was this somewhere they'd been gathered to by colonizers or? No, the Zuni people traditionally lived in this town. There had previously been more Zuni towns. But since the Spanish had arrived and they'd been 
kind of at war with the Spanish on and off for centuries. They'd consolidated into this one town. But this is traditional Zuni architecture and oh, cool. a traditional and very long-lived Zuni town. Okay. I also want to mention that the word Zuni does not come from the language of the Zuni people. That's so often how it goes. <laughs> yeah, and as often is how it goes, it's what the neighbouring Karis people call them. So in their own language, Zuni people call themselves Ashiwi. They call their language Shiwima, and they call their town Halona Itiwana. In English, Zuni people today generally use Zuni for all three of these things. Okay. And so that's what I've decided to do, sticking with that convention. As I've mentioned, Zuni people had been in contact with Spanish settlers for centuries, but the 1840s and 1850s, around the time we were born, marked some of their first interactions with the USA. And this was at first in the form of US military expeditions fighting against the Navajo, who were historically an enemy of the Zuni, and the Zuni sometimes joined with the USA in fighting against the Navajo. The Americans also brought smallpox with them. Like on purpose, or...? I don't think in this case it was on purpose. Okay. I think this was just that, you know, Zuni people had never had smallpox before, so they were very susceptible to it. I haven't seen any record of it being on purpose. Okay. But both Weaver's parents died of smallpox when Weaver was quite young. There was an epidemic when they were around four years old, so it's Mm. probably then when their parents died. Weaver and their brother were adopted into the house of their aunt and her husband, Jose Pelle. Jose was one of the six reign priests who kind of sit at the head of Zuni society and the head of Zuni religion. So this was a very important family, a very rich family, and just kind of a very prestigious existence. We don't know that many specifics about Weaver's early life, but we can guess some things based on what we know about the lives of Zuni children at the time in general. Weaver was assigned male at birth, but there are various ways that they might have demonstrated and been identified in their early childhood as Lamina, which, as I've mentioned, is a third gender. Zuni boys generally wear a shirt and trousers, while Zuni girls generally wear dresses. I spent a while being like, why is that the norm there and also here? (laughs) But like, I don't know. Is that how it's always been? Or I don't quite understand like how their interaction with the Spanish may have affected their culture. They, that's been going on for like hundreds of years. So from what I can gather, they had like had a fair bit of interaction with the Spanish, but it hadn't really led to much cultural exchange. Okay. So some Zuni people, like I mentioned, we was Uncle Jose, some Zuni people do have Spanish names and the Spanish had kind of come in and tried to baptize mm. a bunch of children. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they'll do that. Yeah. So, like, some Zuni people have Spanish names, and Spanish names were now just kind of in use as well at Zuni. But there wasn't a Spanish presence in the town, and there hadn't been much of a cultural influence. Anyway, Lamina children might leave their shirt untucked from the trousers as a way to kind of feminize that outfit. Another way that Lamina are differentiated is that Zuni language has different forms of some words, depending on whether a man is speaking or whether a woman is speaking. And Lamina children might also start using the female forms of these words when they learn to talk rather than the male forms. Oh, this is like blowing my mind. Yeah. Makes sense. As they got a bit older, Lamina children might also graduate towards feminine activities, things like pottery and cooking. It is quite weird, like, the things that are gendered in some societies and not in others. Like, pottery is not gendered in our society. Maybe not as strongly as in this society. Yeah. I think as a hobby... Uh, yeah. It tends to be more something that women do than men do. Okay. Just speaking of that, I just found this interesting, talking about how things are gendered in Zuni society. Weaving at Zuni is a masculine activity if you're weaving large objects like a dress or a blanket or whatever, but a feminine activity if you're weaving like a belt or a bag or something small. 
Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. That's interesting. Where's yeah. the line? I don't really know. <laughs> Gendering things is wild and arbitrary. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think looking at how other societies do yeah. things does really highlight that. As they grew older over the next years of their life, Lama children would gradually transition from wearing masculine dress to wearing feminine dress. And this seems to have happened quite gradually. Like they'll talk about a child starting to wear a woman's shawl over their shirt and trousers and then eventually starting to wear a dress and like gradually moving from one to the other. And all our photographs that we have of Weaver, which are all of them as an adult, show them dressed in the traditional dress of a Zuni woman. Okay. Between age five and nine, male and Lamina children, even ones that had already been recognized as Lamina, underwent the first of two initiation rituals, where they were initiated into one of six kivas. So each kiva is responsible for kind of a different aspect of Zuni religious life. And Wiwa was initiated into the South Kiva, so they're each named based on a direction. On their initiation, children were given a new name. And Zuni get new names at various times in their life. They will still use the old name or use the new name, depending on circumstance, where they are, or, you know, when in their life you met them, Mm -hmm. anything like that. For some Lamana, they would also change their name, probably around this time when they were kind of recognized as Lamana, from a masculine name to a feminine one. I don't know, unfortunately whether Weewit is a masculine name or a feminine name or maybe a unisex name. And I don't know when in their life Weewit acquired this name. Do we have other names for them? No, this is the only name I know them by. Do we know what it means? No. Okay. (laughs) Do do their names, like, have... Their names do have meanings. Yes. Yeah. But quite a lot of Zuni names, for whatever reason, are words borrowed from other nearby languages. So it's not as easy as just going to a Zuni person and being like, hey, what does Weewit mean? Yeah, it's, I guess it's similar to how a lot of names for English speakers today aren't English words. So once they'd been initiated into a kiva, Zuni boys and Lamana began religious training, such as memorizing prayers and kind of Zuni mythology and lore. So tell me about these different kivas. Like, tell me what they do. Like, the differences between them, I mean. I don't know, like, specific traits of each one. Okay. But, for example, different religious ceremonies will take place at different kivas, and that kiva will be in charge of kind okay. of organizing that ceremony and managing it all and that kind of thing. I guess I I'm wondering if it's like a sort of like, do they all have a different vibe? Like, is it a kind of like you've uh-huh. been sorted into your house sort of thing? Like, <laughs> I've I been don't trying to so be, hard not to say that. I don't mean that, to yeah. be like disrespectful in saying that. But just like, like by yeah. what lines are people so assigned? Your kiva is decided based on the kiva of your ceremonial father. So your ceremonial father is the husband of the midwife who assisted at your birth. Oh, oh interesting. Okay. So it's like pretty arbitrary. Yeah, I guess so, I have to keep track of that then. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of kids will have the same ceremonial father then, because I assume there aren't that many midwives. Yeah, I don't know how many midwives there are, or there would have been in Zuni, but that's possibly true, yeah. And there's at least six. Yeah, <laughs> that's true, there are at least six. <laughs> yeah. Do they have any kind of relationship with this guy? or? Yeah, I think this guy does just kind of like play a bit of a role in some ceremonies during their life. Yeah. So that's how you decide what kiva you're in. I'm not sure if there are specific values or anything or kind of stereotypes or anything like that associated with each kiva. I don't know. Unfortunately, I don't have much information about Zuni religion because I didn't look into that too much once I realized that most people writing about it didn't really know what they were talking about. Cool. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So 
we were would have begun this religious education and they were notably very good at it. They had a very good memory. Ooh. They were often called on throughout their life to kind of lead very long and very difficult prayers and things like that. Is this all orally recorded at this point? Do they have writing? Are you asking about Zuni prayers and stuff? Are they orally recorded or this information about Weaver? We I'm asking about their religious Yeah, this is all orally recorded. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I like a lot of religions are practicing this particular hard mode. Yeah, but... It's still hard mode. It's yeah. still impressive. Yeah, no, it is still impressive. Yeah, and they were apparently very impressive at this. Good. To talk a bit more about Zuni religion before I stop talking about something, I won't be able to answer any of your questions. On. Oh, cool. <laughs> so, a lot of Zuni religious ceremonies feature visits and dances by what are called kachinas, which are basically the Zuni pantheon, basically Zuni gods. And between about 10 and 14, Zuni boys underwent a second initiation where they learned that these kachinas who danced at religious ceremonies were, in fact, ordinary Zuni wearing masks. And they would receive a mask themselves and begin to learn these dances. Oh, cool. Roscoe claims that Lamina didn't take part in this second initiation and only had the first initiation. He doesn't provide a source for this, and there are other primary sources that mention we were participating in these dances, so Roscoe perhaps doesn't so, know what he's talking about. I don't, he then goes on to build this whole idea of how Lamina kind of begin their male initiation, but they don't do the second half. And what So they're that? not, like, fully male? Is that the idea that he's trying to express? Yeah, he's kind of trying to express how Zuni would have understood Lamina gender and how they kind of understood masculinity as being acquired through these two mm. initiations and how Lamina have kind of acquired some aspects of masculinity but not all aspects of masculinity. But Which is a like coherent thought but doesn't appear to be supported. Yeah, it was a coherent thought and I started like taking notes on this and being like, oh, this is really interesting. And when I was writing it up, I was like, wait a second. No, I remember reading that Weaver was in these dances. And I went and followed it up and I was like, he just doesn't have a source for that claim. Oh. He footnotes someone, but they don't make that oh. claim. So I think it's just like, one who's of those. the person that he footnoted? Um, he footnotes an anthropologist called Elsie Clues Parsons, okay. who wrote an article, I think it was in 1916, so quite oh, okay. early on in the scheme of things, yeah. specifically about Lamina. Yeah. And she talks about how Lamina underwent this first initiation, but then she goes on and talks about Lamina being in these dances. And I was just like, did Roscoe just read this and misremember it and then try to base his argument on it? I don't really know what happened. Maybe he misinterpreted it. He assumed that because she'd never mentioned them going mm. through the second initiation, he was like, well, I guess they did. They just did the one. But you just yeah. said that they were in the dances. I yeah. mean, they have to have been told them that <laughs> it's humans in the dances well, and they, and they have a mask. Yeah. They to do the dances. And yeah. And they had to get the mask. Yeah. Yeah. So like, that could be working differently, but. Yeah. yeah. Like maybe there was a specific path that Lamina took for this that was different to men, but if that's the case, nobody's ever mentioned it. So I okay. think Roscoe's just confused. Personally. Okay. I hate how often this happens. Yeah, it was very frustrating for me because I was like, if Roscoe's wrong, there's not really anywhere I can go to, mm. like, be sure of what's right. Mm. Like, I can read these anthropologists who wrote in the 19th century, but... There's no, just, like, phone Zuni hotline. Yeah, they just yeah. don't really know what they're talking about. Yeah. Also, though, because, like, you picked up on that basically by, like, luck. Mm. And we, we don't follow up every footnote in every book. There's probably stuff in here that Roscoe got wrong that I just yeah. didn't follow up and didn't notice. And that's just frustrating, but true. Yeah. So I do want to just mention a little bit about Weaver's participation in these dances. I don't want to go in depth any more than I have about Zuni religion because... You can't. I can't. And I thought about having a whole lot of discussion about this because people have tried to analyze it, but realistically it would come down to us speculating about a religion that we don't have 
detailed or accurate enough information on yeah. to say anything about. And I was like, no, nah, we're not yeah, doing that. Yeah, that seems reasonable. So, you know, go and read about this if you want to. I'll put some sources on our blog, but I'll leave the interpretation to Zuni people. <laughs> what I did want to mention is that we were participated in these dances specifically, at least, you know, at one time, maybe this wasn't their only participation, in the role of Kolamina, who, as you may guess from the name, is Alamina Kachina. Cool. So the mask that Kolamina wears has one half of their hair is tied up in the style of a Zuni woman, and the other half of their hair is down in the style of a Zuni man. And then they wear a woman's dress. That's cool. So we were underwent these rituals and education alongside Zuni boys, and we also know that later in life they worked as a farmer, which is a male role for Zuni. At the same time, they would have begun to learn women's roles, such as grinding corn, pottery, weaving below a certain size. <laughs> Can they also weave above that size? We have quite a few photos of we were weaving, actually, and because I don't know how weaving works, I couldn't really <laughs> <laughs> work out what they were weaving. But if you know how weaving works, you can go and look at those photos and tell me. And then, like, place those photos along a gender spectrum. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, I, I know that we were was notably very good at weaving. And very good at pottery. But yeah, generally we were participated in both male activities and female activities. So this is obviously quite an accepted role for a child to take in this community. Mm -hmm. Are there any caveats to that or is that just, it's completely fine? So we do have a bit of a record that Zuni men would sometimes not be happy with their relatives becoming lamina. So we have one example of a lamina called Casanelu and their grandfather was a bow priest, which is a very esteemed, very important role. There were only two bow priests in all of Zuni. Their grandfather was apparently quite disappointed when they were recognized as a lamina and tried to dissuade them from taking on this role. But ultimately, this doesn't seem to have kind of long-term harmed that relationship. Okay. And Roscoe suggests that their grandfather's disappointment was more based on the fact that their grandson now had no chance of kind of growing up and becoming a bow priest and taking on that role mm-hmm. because they were a lamina. So that's potentially specific to this one guy who plays a, like, not unique but almost unique role in the community. Yeah, yeah. And there are a few other mentions I can think of that say men might be disappointed if their child became a lamina. But there's not kind of a societal negative connotation. Yeah, it seems to be very specifically like a father might be disappointed mm. or a grandfather or an uncle might be disappointed rather than society as a whole is like, oh. I mean, yeah, parents are disappointed about the genders of their children all the time. Like, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, maybe it's not that different to a situation where like a father might dis- be disappointed if he had a daughter and he wanted a son. Yeah, I mean, I guess that like comparing it to someone being disappointed that they had a daughter, like... I guess it just sort of begs the question of, like, what is disappointing about this? Yeah, and that's the thing that was never specifically... Yeah, because if it's not a case of, like, this is something we see as fundamentally, like, immoral in some way... It's maybe more like he was looking forward to sharing masculine things with this child that he's not going to or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess that leads to the other question of, like, so you're describing them as having a social role that has both traditionally masculine things mm-hmm. and traditionally feminine things. Yeah. So what's the limitations of that? Like, is this quite a rigidly defined role in and of itself? 
Or is it just sort of, uh, you can kind of like pick and mix? I don't know. Okay. <laughs> no, that's okay. Yeah, but no. I just think it's worth sort of. Yeah, yeah. no, I think that's, that's worth saying. About. I also do want to say that, as I mentioned, men might be disappointed to have their child become a llama. But conversely, women were apparently very happy often when their child or, you know, a younger person in their household was a llama. So part of the reason for that is possibly that Zuni women owned their houses. So when a Zuni man married he would move away to the house of his wife Mm. it means you get to keep your child yeah it means you get to keep your child what we do know of lamina relationships is that they generally followed the traditional patterns of women's relationships so they generally had relationships with unmarried men Mm -hmm. so your child wouldn't move away instead their husband would move in just on that note i don't have much information about we with relationships specifically matilda cox stevenson who is an anthropologist who spent a lot of time at zuni and was very close with we Claims that we were had a biological child, but there's no other mention of this anywhere. That's like one reference from Matilda. So we don't know. We don't really know. And Zuni people do use terms like mother and father and those kinds of things for other older relatives sometimes. Yeah. So that could just be a matter of confusion. Does that imply that a child might be calling them like father then? Possibly, but Matilda Cox Stevenson, she spoke some Zuni, but she definitely gets things wrong writing about the Zuni language, so. Oh, well, okay, whatever. You know. <laughs> she might just be wrong. Yeah, okay. Who knows? Another reason that women might be quite happy to have a llama in the family is that llama were particularly known as being, as I've mentioned, very good at crafts and very hardworking. And part of this is connected with the fact that they wouldn't be taken away from this work by being pregnant and having children. So they could be consistently learning their craft and doing physical work in a way that women couldn't. I remember this about Oshtish as well. Yeah, yeah, there was a very similar thing when we were talking about Oshtish, how um, Bate, which is the third gender that Oshtish was, are specifically known for being very good craftspeople because they can focus on that because they don't focus on raising children. And it's the same situation with Lamina. There must have been just sort of like mediocre Lamina. <laughs> <laughs> there must have been. Like it's great that apparently all of these people are just the best, but it's but, interesting that that keeps coming up. Yeah, it must not have always been the case. Yeah, yeah like I know of several other Lamina at Zuni, but I don't know about their lives in the same way, so I can't tell you if... They were just like they were fine. amazing, or if they were just yeah, fine. Well, I guess we know about this one because they were they were amazing. amazing yeah. so. um, Matilda Cox Stevenson does say that two of the lamina she knew were the best potters and weavers in Zuni. So presumably that's Weaver and one other one. Hmm. So you know, at least one is amazing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> in 1864, when Weaver was in their mid-teens, the USA defeated the Navajo, and. This led, after that, to the influx of a lot more Americans into the area Mm -hmm. now that this conflict was over. Mm -hmm. So a lot of settlers, a lot of anthropologists, and a lot of missionaries arrived. Mm. One missionary was a man named Reverend Taylor F. Ely, who arrived in 1878. So we're not clear on how their relationship began, but we were moved into the Ely household and began assisting Taylor's wife, Mary, with housework. So wait, what are you implying here? (laughs) By relationship, I just mean I don't know how we were like got to know these people or anything. Okay. Roscoe believes that we was paid for this work okay. in goods such as clothing because we have mention in Mary Ely's diary of her making clothes for Weaver. Okay. So it appears that Weaver just has a job. And okay, cool. From records we have from Matilda Stevenson, Weaver apparently really enjoyed this and had a great time. 
Do we know what kind of clothes Mary made for Werewolf? Um, she mentions making skirt. They're women's clothes. Zuni women's clothes or like? I think she says skirts and blouses. Zuni women traditionally wear a dress, so it's one piece. Yeah. So I think Western clothes, but all the photos we have of Werewolf, they're wearing Zuni clothes. I mean, maybe she gave them to Weewa and we was like, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was a point later in Weewa's life when they were in Washington, and we'll talk about that trip to Washington, when they considered buying some satin and making themselves a dress out of that fabric, which is obviously not the traditional Zuni fabric. But then they realized how much satin costs, and they're like, nah. <laughs> Relatable. <laughs> <laughs> so they didn't do that. They did buy themselves a parasol, though. They apparently oh. liked the parasol. It was red. They got it on sale, so like... <laughs> nice. <laughs> did we, like, keep a diary about this, or...? Uh, no, this comes from newspapers. We'll talk about this, but the newspapers okay. were, like, very interested when we were, oh, came to Washington. Sure. Yeah. And so we have a lot of reports just about, like, their daily life <laughs> okay. while they were there. Yeah, but I think what you were kind of maybe getting at is how did the Ely's understand Weewa's gender? Yeah, yeah. So my guess, as far as I can tell, is that the Ely's believed that Weewa was a cis woman. Okay. Mary Ely had very strong feelings about gender, as you can imagine from the wife of a um, missionary. Yeah. Uh, she wrote in her diary, for example, that in Zuni, all the difficult labor, such as grinding the wheat and corn, carrying the water, etc., is done by the women, while men do the sewing and knitting. I wish to reverse their labors. All right, Mary. So Mary had strong feelings about imposing the Western gender binary at Zuni. So it seems very unlikely to me that she would have happily had working with her in the house, somebody yeah. who was assigned male at birth in kind of female housework roles. Her daughter... Ruth Ely also just refers in her diary to Weewa as the Zuni girl who helped us in the house. So it seems that they understood Weewa as a cis woman. I wonder what Weewa thought that they thought. I don't know how much English Weewa spoke at this time. Later Mm. on in her life, Weewa definitely spoke fluent English, but this is probably when they started to learn. So they may not have had very good communication, but we will talk about this more later on when Weewa definitely had the ability to express their gender and how that went. Among Zuni, Weewa was quite unusual in their willingness to associate with the Americans. Roscoe ascribes this simply to them just being kind of a very curious and inquisitive person, which does seem to line up with what we know about their personality. The scholar Ramon Gutierrez, however, writing in the 1980s, so a bit before Roscoe, believes that this was because Weewa was shunned by their own community because of their gender. Is that just not true? That's just not true. Okay, cool. I want to talk about it because if you just read his article – he uses quotes which look like they're quite convincing, and I just wanted to talk about how that's not the case. Gutierrez describes Lamina as, quote, a social arrangement whereby a man or group of men press another male into impersonating a female, forcing him to perform work generally associated with women, offering passive sexual service to men, and donning women's clothes. And he adds that this Lamina gender was one principally ascribed to defeated enemies. Now, obviously, we know that that's just not the case. We were, was a Zuni person raised at Zuni. They were not a defeated enemy. You know, this is pretty clearly not true. The reason I wanted to bring this up, as I mentioned, is because of some of the quotes he uses to back this up. So he tells us that Matilda Cox Stevenson said, quote, The men of the family of Alamina not only discourage men from unsexing, but ridicule them. Unsexing. Yeah, unsexing. Right. <laughs> Sounds like undressing. You just, like, take your gender off. <laughs> yeah. So he used that quote as one of his examples, 
But that quote comes from a paragraph where Matilda Stevenson talks about how Zuni people become Lamina of their own volition, how they're valued by the women in their households, how some of the Lamina she knew were the most talented craftspeople at Zuni. And Gutierrez just picks out this one moment where she mentions one negative thing and builds his argument on that. Why would you do that? Because you're a homophobe. I guess it feels more natural, although obviously bad, to be a homophobic scholar and be like, the Zuni did this and it was awful than to just like make up something in which the Zuni like kind of agreed with you. Yeah. Like, I don't know. I think like wholesale yeah. making stuff up. It's like, why, why are you like, how is this going to ever stand up to scrutiny? Yeah. yeah. Like, I feel like the normal queer phobic process here <laughs> would be to be like, this society was perverted. Yeah. Rather than just do that. Yeah. And when I read that earlier quote, that first quote I read from him, where he kind of talks about Lamina being forced into this role, I was like, so this is basically coming from a place of misogyny where he can't imagine mm. anyone taking on these roles without being forced. Mm. Yeah. And I remember people saying, Saying that about Osh Tish as well. That's definitely a thing that you see, especially in writing at the time, so in the 19th century, mm. is that people just cannot comprehend why someone would take on women's roles if they didn't have to. Mm-mm. Which I think is much more reflective of how badly women were treated in the 19th century in Western society than it is of anything about Zuni. I mean, I guess, like, do we think that he and other people who've said this are consciously lying or do you think they go into this so blinded by their own biases that they manage to twist the sources in their head and then just come up with something that matches their views i think i have to believe gutierrez is consciously lying and And he's gone too far yeah well there's another quote that i wasn't going to mention because it's kind of on a similar line but which i will mention because it's a clearer example of how he's consciously lying so there was a lamina person at Sydney whose name was Uk, and they had a mental disability. And there was a point where Parsons, who I've mentioned, was watching one of these Kachina dancers, and Uk was performing in the dance and was kind of falling out of line and mm-hmm. not quite keeping up with the dancing. And a Cherokee woman who was kind of acting as a guide to Parsons as she visited Zuni said to her, do you notice the Zuni people are laughing at Uk? It's not because they're a lamina, it's because... They don't know the dance. They don't know the dance and they're not keeping up with the dance. I think the specific quote is, have you noticed they're laughing at Uk? It's not because they're a lamina, they're a great joke at Zuni. You know, obviously there's some ableism going on here that yeah. Yeah, is a whole nother kettle of fish. Who said that? The Cherokee woman. Okay. Is that accurate? That's the only source I have oh, on okay. that. That's fair, but it's a shame to open the can of worms of how they dealt with disability. Yeah, that's another reason that I didn't yeah. include that. But um, when Gutierrez brings that up, he uses the quote, have you noticed how they're laughing at Uk? They're a great joke at Zuni. And oh, cuts out the, wow. it's because they're not a Lamina line. And then it's like, here's an example of how Lamina were ridiculed. So like, wow. he's just lying. It's just in bad face. Okay. Is this guy still around? I don't know if he's still around and writing in this okay. field. All right. I read that article of his and I was like, okay. And it's then I- super a shame that we can't send him a hell of... I can't you send people bees over the internet? <laughs> <laughs> Can you? Anyway, in reality, various sources, and I kind of mentioned it a bit, but I'll mention some more, tell us that Lamina in general and we were in particular were 
valued within their society. So the Indian agent Robert Bunker, so he represented the US government at Zuni in around the 1940s, he says, and he presumably heard this from Zuni people, that Wewa was, quote, a power in his Pueblo's greatest councils. So, like, Wewa isn't being shunned from society. It's just the point I wanted to make clear. In 1881, the Ilis left Zuni after a very unsuccessful attempt to have a religious influence. However, a different group of Americans had arrived in 1879. I've mentioned Matilda Cox Stevenson. This group was led by her husband, the geologist James Stevenson. Matilda was there and, you know, some anthropologists and various other people. And they were sent by the newly created US Government Bureau of Ethnology to just kind of study it. Okay. Is that fine? or It's not great. Like, their methods are unethical. Okay. Like, Matilda is quite open about having, for example, threatened to call in US soldiers if she wasn't allowed to be privy to sacred ceremonies, like secret ceremonies. Wow. Um, They stole religious artifacts and took them back to Washington, like... Have they been returned? There's definitely Zuni artifacts still at the Smithsonian, which is where they would have taken them. I'm not sure if any were returned or if they're all just still there or what the situation is. All right, so it's quite bad. So it's quite bad. Yeah, it's quite bad. So Matilda is one of our major anthropological sources on Zuni life of the time. Unfortunately, she returned to Zuni six times over the next 20 years, including after her husband had died. She kind of took over that role from him and wrote a bunch about Zuni. Wasn't he a geologist, though? He was a geologist, but he was the head of this ethnographic expedition. (laughs) I don't know why. I mean, it doesn't seem like they are, like, needing qualifications. Yeah. Yeah. Like, they obviously don't have any kind of, like, good practice standards or anything, like... I yeah. guess he just wrote anthropologist on his CV and handed it to the government. He was like, I can look at rocks. Why can't I look at people? And they were like, go look at people. Yeah. I realize this is a useless question, but how do you go there and think that a reasonable thing to do is to force your way into their sacred ceremonies with threats of, like, military intervention? I don't know. Like, what is your thought process in that moment? Yeah, I mean, like, I think the overall thought process of these people was that Indigenous cultures would inevitably die out and that uh, yes. it was therefore the right thing to do to record them before they did by any means necessary. Which is obviously bad abhorrent, and wrong yeah, and okay. abhorrent yes. on all levels. But yeah, I think that was kind of the justification in their minds for what they were doing. Okay. So Matilda and Weaver became friends. Sure. Naturally. <laughs> Roscoe believes that Matilda befriended Weaver with a anthropological motive, basically. Presumably. That tracks, yeah. Yeah, because Weaver was a Zuni person who was quite keen to talk to American people compared to other Zuni people. Mm. It's also apparent from Matilda's writing that Weaver made a very strong impression on her and that she really held Weaver in high esteem. So to read just an excerpt from a very long quote where Matilda just talks about how amazing Weaver is, she was perhaps the tallest person in Zuni, certainly the strongest, both mentally and physically. She had a good memory, not only for the law of her people, but for all that she heard of the outside world. She possessed an indomitable will and an insatiable thirst for knowledge. She would risk anything to serve those she loved. So Matilda refers to Weewa as she. Yes. What does Matilda think about gender? Matilda thinks that Weewa is a cis woman. Yeah, they'll do it, I guess. Yeah. (laughs) We'll talk more about Matilda's kind of ideas about this later on, but... At this time, Matilda believes Weaver is a cis woman. How old is Weaver now? So they arrived in 1879, so we was about 30. Okay. So as with Mary Ely, Weaver began to work for the Stevenson Expedition. 
We know for a fact this time that they were paid in money. Is money a thing they want? No, I think it took Matilda a while to explain to them what money was and why they should want it. Uh, okay. So they started working for the Stevenson expedition, kind of washing clothes mostly, and they then expanded that into washing clothes at Fort Wingate, which is the nearby U.S. military base, mm-hmm. and earning money and spending money, I guess. The way Matilda writes it, once we were discovered what money was and what they could use it for, they're like, huh, this is good. I'm going to get more of this. What are they buying? I don't know. I mean, look, when I have money, I buy clothes and snacks. That's kind of the few <laughs> things you can buy with money, right? Yeah. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> I understand the economy. <laughs> One of the very early encounters that Matilda had with Weaver which she writes about in her diary, is when she decided she was going to introduce laundry soap to Zuni for washing their clothes. And she decided she was going to begin this by demonstrating the use of laundry soap to Weaver. I'm sure this is going to go terribly somehow. What did the Zuni use before that, when they washed their clothes? I don't know. Like, Weaver had also been working for Mrs. Ely for a while, so... You know, I think Weaver had seen soap before, (laughs) and Matilda just didn't know. So Matilda writes, and Matilda writes about herself in third person, because people in the 19th century will like that. (laughs) So she's talking about herself here when she says herself. Never having had any experience in that work herself, she soon had most of the water from the tub on the floor and was drenched to the skin. (laughs) The pupils, that's Weaver, exclaimed, You do not understand that which you would teach. You do not understand as much as the missionary's wife. She keeps the water in the tub and does not make a river on the floor. Let me take your place. <laughs> I just imagine as well, I mean, like, now this is how we do it. And I'd be like, hmm. And then just pushing the tub off the ground. And like, oh, that didn't work. <laughs> and we were being like, I've been employed as a laundry person, laundry person before. And Matilda's been like, right. <laughs> I have some common sense, Matilda. <laughs> Yes. I love how, like, snarky Weaver was about that. She keeps the water in the tub. Yeah, that is, I think, the only direct quote we have from Weaver. So so we can just extrapolate Weaver's entire personality. Yeah. I mean, that. no, that's not true, actually. We have other quotes which are much more just kind of narrative, yeah. where Weaver's just like, this thing happened to me. I think that's the one that, like, shows personality best. So to get back to anthropology... And we've covered how Matilda's anthropology was unethical. Interestingly, Weewa assisted Matilda with her work in a variety of ways. I'm going to talk about a few examples here that are recounted to us by Matilda, but I don't want you to dismiss them just because they're recounted by Matilda, because I will talk about examples later on where we do have more accounts from different people about Weewa assisting with anthropology. So I don't want you to just be like, yeah, Matilda's pretending that Weewa was on board when they weren't. So Matilda gives one account of Weewa delaying an elder who was on his way to a ceremony to give Matilda a chance to get into the ceremonial chamber and take photographs. On another occasion, a newspaper report talks about Weaver's concerns about Matilda publishing a book which included Zuni sacred knowledge and photos of sacred objects. So, like, we was like, hey, take a photo of this. And then we was like, hey, hey, put that back. From what I can gather from this one account, Weaver was happy for Matilda to record these things, but didn't want them just widely published. Okay. The newspaper then says, talking about Weewa, but when she was kindly told what use Mrs. Stevenson would make of the pictures and that they would be in a book in which her people would be most kindly mentioned, Weewa became reconciled. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if the newspaper was just being like, but then Weewa decided this was fine. Or if Weewa did actually decide this specific thing was fine. But yeah, I just did want to bring up the fact that Weewa was kind of assisting Matilda and working 
with Matilda on some of this stuff. I mean, there is some, like, vast gap between assuming they are genuinely friends, letting your friend record this or see yeah. this, and letting this be published. I feel like she's maybe not been entirely clear with where, what, what she was going to do with those photographs. Oh, like, surely, right? Yeah, like, yeah. surely. I mean, the fact that it seems that Matilda took these photographs and then returned to Washington and began work on publishing the book, and it seems that it's at that point that we were like, wait a second, what do you mean you're going to publish this mm. secret knowledge that yeah. we shared with you? Yeah, so I don't think Matilda was honest about what she was doing. I mean, she'd have a vested interest in not being honest. Yeah, yeah absolutely. She's a bad lady. <laughs> so the Stevensons returned to Washington in late 1885, and we were chose to accompany them. This seems to be more as someone who was working with Matilda in this anthropological role than as somebody who washed their clothes. Okay. We was not accompanying them, like, as a household servant or anything. We was accompanying them as a representative of Zuni. It seems that Matilda organized Weaver's visit as part of an effort to increase the visibility of her work, to secure funding for her work, and particularly to increase the visibility of the Women's Anthropological Society, which she had just founded recently. Roscoe suggests that Weaver was willing and keen to come along to kind of just increase the visibility of Zuni, represent the Zuni people, give the Zuni people a good reputation to the American people, and all that kind of stuff. We have no specific record or evidence for why we were chose to come, but that may be the case. Indigenous delegations were not that uncommon in Washington at the time, for a variety of reasons, such as treaty negotiations, Americans looking for an excuse to show off their military power and their society, all those kinds of things. But Weaver's visit drew more interest than most because where most Indigenous visits to Washington were groups of men, Weaver was believed by the Washington public to be a single a woman. woman. Yeah, and a single woman, that's true. So the newspapers refer to them as an Indian princess and write up yeah. about how charming they were at parties and how they outshone the hostess and, you know, everyone was very taken with this Indian princess and so forth. So they're flown in English by this point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they accompanied Matilda to a variety of society events. They apparently commented that the people of Washington must be incredibly rich since all they did was make and receive calls to each other. <laughs> how I feel when I read about the tier of society as well. True. <laughs> they also referred to the women of Washington as frauds because they pat out their hair with rats, you know? Do you know that word? Yeah. No. You looked at me with confusion. I don't mean the rodent. You just said rats. Yeah. So when you brush your hair and hair comes out in your hairbrush, they would then pull that hair out oh. of the hairbrush and use it to make pads to pad their big kind of fancy hats. Why don't they have other things they could use for that? I mean, I guess, I guess if you see guess the pad it, through the hair, it's still the same color and texture uh, as the hair, so okay. it, you can get away with it. Also, it's free. It's on your head. So we were very quickly picked up the norms of Washington society. They'd recognize people they'd seen at parties and, you know, greet them appropriately and all those kinds of things, which I'm pretty impressed with. I was going to say, yeah. Weaver has so many social skills, I'm yeah. intimidated. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, Weaver's good memory has been like an ongoing threat here. Yeah, yeah. Weaver does have a good memory. That is a fact we know about Weaver. So on the 23rd of June in 1885, Weaver was introduced to the President of the United States, Grover oh. Cleveland. <laughs> One of those, like, nobody presidents. <laughs> yeah, you're like, who's Grover Cleveland? Some dude. I think Grover Cleveland's one of the, like, more well-known ones from this time. Okay, I'll take your word I for it. doesn't even know where Texas is. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> yeah. I'd really like to tell you more about this meeting, but there's not much to say. Apparently they didn't say much. 
And they shook the president's hand. And why? Like, kinda, in what context was it? Like, why did this happen? Um, this was specifically that Matilda was kind of organizing these social events okay. that we would attend and manage through various connections to organize for Weaver to meet the president. So that occurred. So I've mentioned a bit about how we were kind of fit into and learnt the norms of Washington society. On the other hand, they continued to behave in other ways in line with Zuni expectations rather than American expectations. So they always continued to wear traditional Zuni dress with mm-hmm. the addition of their parasol. They would take long walks alone at night, which is obviously not something appropriate for American women at this time. They continued to engage in manual labor. So there's records, for example, of them like helping shovel snow off the Stevenson's roof, which is you know not what a woman would have done in that level of society that they were living in at that time. They also continued to follow Zuni religious practices, which was quite logistically difficult outside of Zuni. So they'd get regular deliveries of sacred cornmeal from across the country to use in their sacrifices. When the summer solstice arrived in June, which is a very important religious event in the Zuni calendar, we were had Matilda write back to Zuni to determine the exact date when they would be celebrating in Zuni to ensure that they celebrated on the same date. And then Matilda and we were negotiated with the Smithsonian Museum to Um, Have their stuff back. To have some stuff. Not religious objects, but the Mm. materials to make religious objects. So it's things like feathers and tortoise shells and various woods and stuff that they couldn't get elsewhere in Washington to take these from the Smithsonian and make prayer sticks that they needed to conduct this ceremony. And then once that was done, we would donate the prayer sticks back to the Smithsonian. Apparently willingly. I see. I feel like that would have been totally reasonable if the Smithsonian hadn't stolen a bunch of them first. Yeah, it's very hard to decide how to feel about Weaver's relationship with Matilda and with the Smithsonian. So Weaver worked quite a lot with the Smithsonian while they were here in Washington, sort of providing information about the Zuni artifacts they had and things like the Zuni tableau that they had in, you know, in the weird dioramas they have in old museums. Oh, yeah. And kind of oh, yeah. ensuring that those were accurate and that they had good information about that. But on the other hand, Matilda and the Smithsonian are unethical and immoral. I guess we were was in a way making the best of the bad situation. Like, you're gonna talk about our culture and have our stuff in your museum, you may as well get it right. So regarding these prayer sticks, mm-hmm. though, are they significant past their use in a particular ceremony? I don't think so. It seems that they're okay. made for the ceremonies that they're used in, from what I can gather. And then what happens to them if the museum doesn't? That's a good point, and I yeah. have no idea. Okay. But yeah, I found a lot of references to Zuni people making prestics. Mm-hmm. And the fact that they were making these very regularly yeah, suggests okay. to me that they weren't kind of a sacred object that was passed on. Mm-hmm. They were a thing you made for their use. It could just be that making them is part of the celebration. Yeah. yeah, yeah. If you have other ones that are fine. That's true. That's true. And one thing I was going to say is that making prestics is a male activity. And I don't actually know if a Lama would have normally made prestics or if that's something that we were did because they were the only Zuni around and somebody had to do it. So I thought that was an interesting point. As I've kind of alluded to and mentioned a few times, while they were in Washington, Weaver was viewed by Washington society as being a cis woman. There are a few mentions in newspapers that kind of comment on their masculine appearance, and there's one story in a newspaper which mentions them being mistaken for a man. So they're at a party and a woman's like, oh, who's this hot Indian? And someone's <laughs> like, that's the Zuni princess. And she's like, oh, well, okay, um, lovely to meet you. <laughs> Okay. Well, there's a lot to unpack there. <laughs> yeah, so that, that occurs. But, like, overall, like, there's a couple of mentions that Weaver looks masculine, but there's not any question by Washington society that they're not a cis woman. I um, mean, it's possibly just that thing where a Native American woman looks different enough to a white woman to these people that they're like, I don't know. Maybe this yeah. is what a Zuni woman looks like. I don't know. Yeah. 
As I mentioned, and as you kind of asked before, Wewa spoke fluent English at this time, and had they wanted to communicate their gender, they could have. Like, they had the language skills to do that. They were doing a lot of anthropological interviews and a lot of work talking about Zuni culture. So they definitely had the opportunity to communicate this if they wanted to, which it seems that they didn't do. I mean, they were probably quite aware that that would have made their like life in Washington harder. Yeah, I mean, they probably had an idea of how Americans would react to that, and they could probably see how binary American society was, probably heard Americans talk about gender, you know? I mean, like, you told us that they picked up, like, American social norms very quickly. Yeah, no, that's true. In 1908, this is after we were had passed away, and once the public knew that they were Lamina, Clara True, who had been a friend of Matilda, wrote about Weaver and gives us an idea of how the public might have reacted had they known. Oof. Yeah, this is going to be bad. And All right. why Weaver would have decided not to tell people. So Clara says, I can't think of anything so funny as the story of Weaver. The joke of the story is that the beautiful Weewa was a bold, bad man, father of a family in Zuni. The fun he had after he got back home, you can imagine. It is really one of the best things in Washington that has ever occurred. Oh, shut up, Clara. Yeah, yeah. And then she's like, I'd like to use this story in my hospital newsletter to raise money for bandages. I think it will be hilarious. It's like, go away, Clara. So they weren't the only Lamina in Zuni, as we discussed. So would they have seen anthropologists interact with the others? Probably, yeah. And maybe that didn't go amazing? Anthropologists, most of the ones writing at the time, are not kind of like openly homophobic. They're not like this is an abomination or anything. Mm. They're like, this is weird and curious. They are kind of like, okay, this is weird. Like, what's going on here? Why is this man dressed as a woman? That's kind of enough. Yeah. Yeah. It's realistic to think that Weaver could have seen this conversation and be like, I don't want any of that. No. So Matilda spent a lot of time at Zuni and Weaver's gender was not a secret at Zuni. Yeah. Other Zuni people knew, other white people knew. It is a bit strange that Matilda claims she never knew. It's possible that Matilda did know and that Matilda decided because a Zuni princess was better PR than a Zuni Lamina that they weren't going to reveal that in Washington or that we were decided because they didn't want to deal with that that they weren't going to reveal that in Washington. Yeah. So yeah, that's also a possibility that Matilda did know and they'd agreed that that wasn't going to be public knowledge. I mean, if Matilda is, like, researching Zuni people and Weewa's gender is well-known in Zuni and Lamina are, like, a thing in Zuni, it seems very unlikely that Matilda doesn't know Weewa's gender. Matilda and Weewa were very close. And for these about six months when they were in Washington, they lived together. Yeah, I would say Matilda knew. I don't think it's impossible that she didn't know. I feel like from the, like, situation you've painted about Zuni – it would take some amount of willful blindness. I think it would. Like when I talked, for example, about we were working, doing laundry at Fort Wingate, we were started working doing laundry at Fort Wingate and then kind of other Zuni people also started doing this. And it's mentioned that the soldiers at Fort Wingate preferred to have Lamina do their laundry than women because Lamina were generally physically stronger. So we was doing this role that is kind of specifically recognized by Americans as a Lamina role, surely Matilda would have known. Yeah, like, in that circumstance, it would take, like, willful denial on Matilda's part to be like, unlike the other, like, laundry workers, we was just a very strong woman. Yeah, and Matilda writes about we were performing the role of Colamina in Kachina dances. How does she contextualize that, then? Um, she just describe it and then it's like, and that's all we have time for today. <laughs> 
So what Matilda claims is that she found out about Weaver's gender either very late in Weaver's life or after Weaver's death when she was involved with dressing the body. So a lot of her writing about Weaver is kind of put together for publication after Weaver's death. So at the time that she's putting it out for publication, her story is, or the truth is, that she does know Weaver is a Lamina, but that she didn't know at the time when she was kind of gathering this information. Okay. Yeah, that seems like probably a lie. And it makes sense. Like, there's obvious reasons why Matilda would lie. Yeah. We will return to Zuni sometime in mid-1886. In 1892, a Zuni man named Nick Dumaka was accused of witchcraft by Zuni people. Witchcraft was a very serious accusation at Zuni. It's kind of the major negative accusation you can make against a person, and it is a criminal accusation, so you can be tried for witchcraft. Witches were believed to be this kind of secret society having their own kiva and their own kind of secret meetings and everything in which they aim to encourage negative thoughts between Zuni people and general negativity in Zuni society. And if someone had negative thoughts, especially jealousy is the most common example, but if someone had like anger or anything towards another person, they themselves could then take on the role of a witch or be accused of being a witch and of having cursed people. So if people felt ill, it was often blamed on a witch having cursed them. Or if there was famine or drought, it was often blamed on witches who were then identified as people within Zuni society who would have reason to curse someone. So as in like, if you're angry at someone or jealous of someone maybe a witch has cursed you or you are the witch you are the witch so both maybe a witch has influenced you to have those thoughts or you are the witch and you are cursing someone you curse someone with those thoughts wait so can you be like oh no i think i'm becoming a witch now or is that not how it works i'm not sure i was trying to kind of figure out if you just were a witch who was just kind of living amongst zuni and having your negative thoughts about zuni people or if the idea was if you started having negative thoughts you would become a witch or I'm not clear on that point. All right. But generally a witch is a person, a Zuni person, who has negative thoughts towards other Zuni people and can use those thoughts to curse them. And that's a major concern within Zuni society. So Nick was generally very unpopular in general in Zuni. He'd spend a fair bit of time working for Americans and living with Americans, and he'd returned from that being very skeptical about Zuni religion and kind of questioning aspects of Zuni culture. He ended up getting into a fight with a group of other young Zuni men into a drunken argument. He was beaten very badly and left for dead, and then when he didn't die, they sort of went, well, you were supposed to die, you must be a witch. So Nick was tried for witchcraft. As you might expect, a witchcraft trial was not what you would consider a fair trial. So he was tied up and suspended from the rafters and he was interrogated. Oof. Generally, if you confessed to witchcraft, you would be exiled from Zuni. But if you didn't confess, you might just be killed. Yeah, I see those sorts of decisions. Yeah, so, you know, it's how you think a witch trial yeah, would okay. be. There was a Zuni delegation in... um. Salem in Massachusetts visited in the 1880s and the head of that Zuni delegation like stood up and thanked the people of Salem for their work against witches. Oh, we're like, ah, yes, we have this problem we're too. We're fighting witches together and like here's some advice on how you can fight witches and you've done really good work. I can't believe wow. I've heard that before. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. I mean like it's bad. What? But, <laughs> but that's still so interesting. interesting. So Nick was being interrogated for witchcraft and his family sent to his American friends for help. They sent to the Americans and said, hey, you know that guy Nick who used to work for you? He's being tried for witchcraft, and the Americans sent in the army. So 27 U.S. soldiers arrived and camped outside Zuni. Their plan was to arrest the two bow priests who presided over Nick's trial. They also planned to arrest the Zuni governor. So that's kind of the Zuni person who represents Zuni in relations with Americans. Mm-hmm. 
His name is Dick Tanahi, and he was Weaver's older brother. So we're just overachieving in this family in general. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, they were a very important family. Oh, yeah, true. Yeah. <laughs> I when some of the soldiers arrived at Dick's house to arrest him, they found Weaver waiting for them in the doorway and blocking the doorway. Lena Zuni, who is Dick's wife's sister, so Weaver's sister-in-law, I guess, recounted what happened next, and her daughter Flora translated this into English. And part of the reason that I want to read this quote from Lena is to give an idea of the ways in which a Zuni person talks about a Lamina person. Okay. Although keeping in mind that this is in translation, but translated by a Zuni person. So Lena says, My sister's husband's younger brother, although he was a man in woman's dress, got angry. He hit the soldiers. When they were going to take his brother, although he pretended to be a woman, he hit them. He was strong. He stood holding the doorposts and would not let them come in. So I want to mention a few kind of translation notes that Roscoe adds to this. So we have both the text that Lena said and the text that Flora translated, so we can actually compare exactly what was said in Zuni. Mm-hmm. So the first thing is that Zuni doesn't have gendered pronouns, so the choice to use he him pronouns has been made by the translator. Flora as a translation choice. But it's still been made, so Yeah, why? it's still been made by a Zuni person. Yeah. I can't say exactly why, but... You know, it's interesting to know that that's the case. Secondly, the word otsitsi, which is the word which Flora translates as man in the phrase, although he was a man, is specifically one that refers to biological sex. When Lena says, although he was a man in woman's dress, it's specifically saying, you know, biologically has a penis assigned male at birth. Not, not like man in a social sense. <laughs> so it's saying yeah. it's like male instead of man. Yeah. Lastly, the phrase which Flora translates as pretended to be a woman has connotations of kind of an unconscious act or a natural act rather than a conscious decision to pretend to be a woman, which is more what the word pretend Mm. implies in English. Yeah. So a biological male presenting as a woman. Yeah. As is natural and not a conscious decision for them. I guess it's how that's pictured. Cool. Flawless translation work there, guys. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's fine. I mean, like, this is me trying to build a translation of the work of Roscoe, who also doesn't speak Zuni and is relying on the work of another person, Newman, who wrote a dictionary of Zuni. Oh, what? Yeah. So does Will Roscoe come to doing this research just with a dictionary and a lot of confidence, or? I think he does. So, like, we have to keep that in mind as well. Whereas, like, Flora does speak Zuni, but conversely... Flora is not a native speaker of English. Yep, well, that's a pickle, all right. <laughs> I feel like a lot of this episode of me being like, here's this thing that I thought was interesting. I and we're know. like, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I feel like that's inevitable in the fact that we're talking about a culture that I didn't have very good sources on. Yeah. So it's just kind of like, okay, I don't know how to interpret that in that context because I don't have good enough information about the context. So, unfortunately, that's the situation. I guess if you speak Zuni, call us. Don't waste your time phoning us. Just do a podcast episode of your own. And we'll delete this and replace it with a link to your podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, to get back to the soldiers currently trying to arrest Weaver's brother, Weaver blocked the doorway. And then, according to American Captain Nordstrom, Weaver slammed the door so fast that it caught the tails of the soldier's coat who was trying to get in, and left him trapped until he thought to draw his sword and cut off the tail of his coat. <laughs> that sounds kind of fake, but, like, there are multiple accounts of this. <laughs> Their doors must have been so well sealed. Mm. Yeah, that must have been a heavy door and a sharp sword. I just like to picture him, like, having to sort of like, to draw the sword and to cut the coat and maybe yeah. it fell over a few times. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so those American soldiers withdrew. From Weewa alone. <laughs> we <were> slamming a door. <laughs> wow. Then they call for reinforcements, leading to a total of about 200 American soldiers camped outside Zuni. Oh, seems unnecessary. 
definitely unnecessary. They want to arrest three people, four people now, because they also want to arrest Weaver now because of that. We already know that Weaver can take on 27 soldiers. <laughs> so yeah, eventually the Zuni and the Americans negotiated and the Zuni agreed that they would hand over Weaver, Weaver's brother and the head bow priest. Accounts differ on whether the second bow priest was also arrested by the Americans. I'm not clear on that. And then if they did that, the American soldiers would leave. So Weaver was arrested by the Americans and went to jail at Fort Wingate. I don't really know anything about their time in prison. I don't know whether they were imprisoned as a woman or as a man. So I can't really tell you anything more about that. They were only in prison for a month and then they were released and they traveled the 40 miles back to Zuni on foot. Okay. So this brings us to kind of the end of what we know about Weaver's life. By 1896, when they were in their late 40s, they were suffering quite badly from heart disease. And in December of that year, they died in the presence of their family and also of Matilda. The step for Weewa and Matilda from I'm calling the army if you don't let me into your sacred ceremony to I'm here at your deathbed is just wild. Mm. How did they get there? I really don't know. But they were obviously genuinely friends. I mean, I don't think it's that wild for someone to, like, generally have a entitled view towards another people's culture, but have that, like, one person they're friends with. It is interesting to think why Weewa was willing to accept and be very close to somebody who behaved in that way. Yeah. I mean, how habitual is I'll bring in the army, though? I mean, I think I only have one reference to that. Yeah. So I don't know. Like, if she's genuinely kind to and interested in we were on a day-to-day basis and every now and then she's like what if i publish this thing and we was like no 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 like yeah yeah know. like it obviously happened i mean maybe they had arguments about it and we just don't know because matilda didn't write that down i don't know matilda wrote down when she made a fool of herself <laughs> with the laundry <laughs> yeah but admitting you don't know how to wash things is a lot different than admitting you got called out for your entire like job yeah. yeah. Being unethical. Yeah. And, like, I also feel like maybe for an upper-class Washington woman, I'm thinking you don't know how to do laundry is actually fine. Yeah. Yeah, why would you know how to do laundry? Yeah. Above that. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Although we were, had worn a dress for their whole adult life, as was traditional for Lamina, they were buried wearing a dress over men's trousers. Interesting. It is interesting, yeah. And Roscoe does a lot of, like, thinking about what this could mean, and it kind of links into his idea that Zuni gender is something that, which is acquired in life through these initiations that you go through mm. and the idea that therefore when you're born you don't really have a gender yet and he argues that when you die you also don't really have a gender yet and therefore they've reverted to this marker of sex. Zuni do have this concept which they refer to as cooked and raw of people being raw before they've kind of undergone initiations or if they're not considered civilized so if they're not zuni people and being cooked once they've been kind of initiated and learned about yeah. religion and civilization okay. and everything so, so are we are we raw to zuni i guess we are raw to zuni yeah okay i mean I- lamina were already like you said taking on both masculine and feminine mm. coded roles and activities yeah. so yeah. it's not really that I think it sounds less like this is returned to a neutral point and more this is a representation of combination yeah. of everything they've done in their life. I guess um, that is a way of looking at it. Which is sometimes what hypothetically we think maybe cultures do with burial practices. Yeah, I mean that- what they include in graves and things. Yeah, that makes sense. I did have a question which I was going to ask at some point and it never came up. Yeah. Are there like similar 
like gender options if you're assigned female at birth. So there was a person called Nancy who lived at Zuni, who was assigned female at birth, and Nancy is generally considered to have taken on a lot of masculine roles, to be quite a masculine person, and Nancy did also perform in dances as Kalamina. Zuni people, although I'm not aware of them using the word Lamina for Nancy, did use kind of an adjective, which I don't know the word because I don't know Zuni, but an adjective that is kind of based off Lamina. So they described her as being kind of Lamina-like or Lamina-esque. Or... Yeah, so she's described as being like a Lamina. Okay. They... Nancy we just is... have no possible. <laughs> no idea. Nancy is described as being like a Lamina, but I don't think there was the same kind of clear role and kind of clear steps to taking on that role mm. that there was for people assigned male at birth who were Lamina. Okay. It's also the case that, like, we know about quite a few Lamina at Zuni. People who were alive at the time we were mentioned knowing somewhere between 5 and 10 usually. And Nancy is the only kind of equivalent that I know of. That's interesting as well because it gives us an example of someone who is not falling into a conventional gender role but who hasn't gone through these sort of official ceremonies and so forth, which I think was another question I had that we you've presented us with these sort of three in some ways quite rigid categories mm. that you're kind of like mm. officially recognized as being one or the other or the other. I guess I had the sort of question of like if a, a child who has been assigned male at birth if that's even an appropriate way to describe this, you know, <laughs> a child that is born and has a penis and is either going to, you know, be a man or a lamina in their general, yeah. like, is there room for someone to be not completely traditionally masculine or feminine, but not be fully in this other third category? And I don't know if that's a case where, like, yes, if you're assigned female at birth and you're gender non-conforming for whatever reason, because they don't really have an official category or if there's other potential cases that we may or may not have any record of, of people just not quite fitting into the ideal archetypes of what people are like and how they dress and what they want to do with their lives and stuff like that. Mm, Yeah, I do only know of examples of that of people assigned female at birth, so Mm. I don't know of kind of details about specific individuals, but I do know that there were, for example, a few women who were in Kivas. Okay. Although that was traditionally a male and lamina role. Just because that was like they had aptitude for it or something. Yeah, I'm not sure why. Okay. But I just know that there were some women who were. I do know an example of a situation where men could take on a women's role, but it's a very specific situation. So if a Zuni woman was giving birth and there was no midwife on hand to attend the birth, a medicine man could attend that birth. But only women were allowed to be in the birthing room. So during that time when he was in that room, he would be referred to as a woman. As a woman. Mm, and referred okay. to as grandmother and would take on a female role. Just for that situation. For, and, you know, female okay. gender, essentially, just for that moment. And does that involve just referring to him by that terms? Or was there, like, go get changed? I only know that it involved referring to him with feminine terms. Okay. I don't know if there was anything else involved in terms of dress or anything like that. You know, at the start, you talked to us about how, like, a child is born and over their sort of childhood mm. they might start dressing differently or using yeah. like feminine language or that kind of thing. Does this culminate the family being like, oh, it looks like our child is a lamina or does this culminate when the child is like, I am a lamina? It was always presented as being something the child just did. 
rather than something that the family did. And like I mentioned, there might be many I'm, of their family trying to dissuade them, but there doesn't seem to be a point where people are like, oh, you're a Laman and therefore you should do these things. No, I'm more asking, could a child just do these things and, you know, if questioned, know that they're a boy. Mm. Stevenson? They're a boy who likes to wave small belts. <laughs> <laughs> But not large dresses. Yeah. Uh, Matilda Stevenson does mention that, you know, children might start doing these things, untucking their shirt, liking cooking and so on. And then kind of as they reached puberty, they would have to decide for sure if they did want to actually assume women's dress and be a lamina. It's just one throwaway sentence by Stevenson. So I I guess the question, though, is how, like – feminine do you have to be as a boy yeah for it to get to that point where it's like okay you have to decide before the ceremony or whatever if you're going to have the gender role of a lamina or a man and like could that child be like no 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 like i'll do the like male ceremony and broadly do male things but also like i still would like to make pottery sometimes yeah but i'm not a lamina yeah i don't know i don't have any examples of that happening so i really don't know how much you could deviate, like, from those three gender roles. And I think not in scholarship, but in general, like, reading on the internet about kind of Indigenous gender roles, especially Indigenous American gender roles, which often have a kind of third gender, people paint this picture of, therefore, all gender was accepted and you could, you know, be who you were. But it's not clear whether... It's just a third rigid role you have yeah, to fit into. Yeah, I guess that's ultimately, yeah. like, the question yeah. we're very long-windedly asking. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I don't know the answer. I think we have a few examples that suggest that Zuni women did have kind of options to mm. be outside of traditional feminine roles, but not for Zuni men. Okay. Mm. And that's but- possibly because there was the lamina option for Zuni children assigned male at birth. So it was like, well, if you're doing those things, aren't you a lamina? Interesting. Are there still Lamina now in Zuni culture? Is that still something? I'm not aware of any people now specifically who do identify as Lamina. I came across one thing on the internet where someone was like, oh, I met this person who was talking about their Lamina friend. So, like, <laughs> there I, is a Lamina. <laughs> I guess out there's there, someone out somewhere. there. <laughs> but it's generally the case, and this happened after Weaver's death, and I decided not to talk about it today, but you know, American assimilationist yeah. policies right, okay. tried really hard to erase that and punish quite severely children who were Lamina and so forth. So it's generally the case that America tried to get rid of that. And for Zuni people growing up now, they're more likely to find queer community and queer identities that aren't Zuni ones, and then perhaps learn about Lamina kind of later on, but they're much more likely to first learn about, like, gay or trans or whatever identities than traditional Zuni identities. Okay. And I don't know about this specifically in Zuni, but reading more generally, there's a lot of kind of questioning by two-spirit people of, can I identify with this traditional role from my culture? if I only learned about it later on and if some knowledge about it has been lost and if I don't fit completely into Mm. what it was at the time. Yeah, that's certainly work that a lot of people are doing from different cultures. Yeah, and that's definitely something that people are thinking about and struggling with. Mm. Definitely a conversation that is ongoing in Indigenous communities today. With that, we've been Queer as Fact. Thank you very much for listening. I'm Alice. I'm Irene. I'm Eli. If you enjoyed this episode, you can find more of our content on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr, where we are Queer as Fact. 
You can also find the rest of our episodes on Podbean or Spotify or on Apple Podcasts. If you do listen to us, especially on Apple Podcasts, we'd really appreciate it if you would rate us and leave us a review to help us expand our audience and help more people find our podcast. And if you do, we will read it out on this podcast. So the review we'll read now is from French Nerd, which should give you a clue. And the title is Amazing Podcast, but also a note on French, which is a bigger clue. <laughs> So we can't say French is the takeaway from this. Yes. The review reads, Thank you for your comprehensive and detailed recount of queer history. It's fun, affirming, and entertaining. So thank you for that. Also, I'm listening to the, I'm just going to stick to my guns here, Chevalier Deon episode right now, and can give advice on how you say the male form versus the female form. The point is that I can't say it, so I can't really read this review. Right. <laughs> Throughout the episode, you say it in the feminine form with a sort of air sound at the end. The masculine form would be said with more of an A sound. So there you go, which is interesting. Thank you. That is like a very simple thing, and I can make some variation on those sounds of my mouth, but I definitely couldn't find that easily available on the internet. (laughs) So that is helpful and good to know. I'm glad that we accidentally fell down in saying it in a feminine form because that is like what we would have chosen to do out of those two gendered options. So thank you very much. I hope that wasn't too painful to listen to. I say a lot of other French things in those episodes, <laughs> almost certainly terribly. So thank you. If we ever need to talk about them again, we can do so with more confidence now. And then they end it with, again, thank you. So thank oh, you. We appreciate corrections. Also, on that note, actually, they are from Australia, which I oh. like to mention because it's exciting. They could be anywhere. They could be. We'll read one more of you today, which is also from Australia. Oh, wow. my God. Their username is Rats Rocks. That's good. Uh, which is great. The title of this review is so great. Can't recommend this enough. Oh, please do. Tell your friends how great we are. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. (laughs) It reads, honestly, this podcast is just the best. It's so interesting and informative and handles everything so sensitively, including content warnings on each episode, especially this episode. The hosts always do excellent research into the subjects they're talking about, especially this episode. (laughs) And make the content super engaging without compromising on accuracy. I love that they consider the historiography of their sources rather than just taking things at face value. Can you imagine if we'd done that this episode? Uh, That would have been a bad, bad time. Yes. Not just great podcast makers, but also great historians. It's so great to be able to explore areas of history where I feel represented, and most of which are completely fresh to me, even after a history degree. I cannot recommend it enough. Where did you study? Who are you? (laughs) There aren't that many history degrees in Australia. Tell us more. Thank you very much. That's very kind. It's very also good. still so wild to me when like people who've done history are like, hey, this is a good history podcast, because I kind of assume that we're just tricking most people. Because we have basic history knowledge. And then historians are like, oh, dude, come on. But sometimes that's not the case. <laughs> good. So thank you very much for listening. If you're in Melbourne, we probably are like two degrees of separation yeah. away from being friends. Yeah. So... Like, you're queer, uh, you study history. How many of us can there be in indeed, this city? Yeah. Twelve. <laughs> exactly. We hold meetings. Yes. We all sit on one side of the table. <laughs> I was about Who's to say. Who's the 13th? Rats rocks. I'm sorry that we take every nice review and just, like, ruin it. I mean, like, what if you were Judas at the last time? Oh, is that Judas? I didn't know Judas. I thought you were talking about Jesus. I would never speak of rats rocks in that way. I'm so sorry. You're lovely. Thank you very much for your review. This is the end of the season. You don't have to come back next time. <laughs> have a break from this nonsense. We'll be back on the 1st of December when who knows what we'll be doing because that's months away. <laughs> In the meantime, you can still buy a Queer as Pack t-shirt. 
to help you think of us while we're gone. <laughs> Check out our Redbubble store when you can do just that and many other Queer as Fact themed products. We would also encourage you, if you have some spare change, to contribute to our Patreon. And over our break, we're hopefully going to be buying some stuff. We will be putting some news up on our Patreon over November about what plans we have going forth for the Patreon and for the podcast and for the money that people have given us. So if you'd like to know more about that, you can go to Patreon. Uh, we're Queer as Fact on there as well. Thanks for listening and we'll see you in December. <laughs>